But this morning, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 11. Matthew chapter 11, and as you turn there, I'm going to open us up in another word of prayer. Let's ask God to speak to us this morning. Father, thank you that we get to open the word of God today, and that we get to, I get to teach from it. And Lord, we get to hear what you have to say to us today through the gospel of Matthew. And so Lord, we pray uh, that as we do this, that you would speak to us, that you would encourage us. Uh, Lord, where we need to be convicted and prodded, Lord, that you would bring that about in the healing way that you do. And where we need encouragement and edification, uh, Lord, that you would bring that about. Uh, we look to your word this morning with great hope and great expectation of you to speak to our hearts. Help us to hear and be responsive to what you have to say. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. We're in Matthew chapter 11. We're going to look at verses 1 through 6 this morning, and we're going to talk about the idea of slaying doubt. Slaying doubt. You know, the Bible's very clear that life is hard, and that just because you know God, just because you walk with God, just because you love God, that does not mean life is going to be easy. Now, we know that. In fact, the Bible's full of stories of people who loved God, who walked with God, who honored God, and life was actually more difficult in some ways with God in their life than maybe if God wasn't in their life in this end of things. Sometimes when you come to faith in Christ, it brings more trouble into your life, actually. You get this thing called persecution sometimes and things of that nature. People begin to treat you differently. So life is not a guarantee of a bed of roses for the Christian. And whether it's the trials of life that we face, that everybody faces, like health issues and job losses and economy situations and relationship strains, or whether it's the spiritual things that come into our lives because of our walk with Christ, not being persecuted for our faith, the Bible is just very clear. Life is difficult. Life is hard. And really without Christ, life is seems like to me it would be pretty impossible. Think of the Bible. Think of Job. Here's Job's a guy who loved God, who lost everything, but loved the Lord and held to Him. Daniel, taken from his homeland and relocated to an idolatrous country. These are heroes of our faith. Jeremiah. Things got so bad for Jeremiah, God's prophet, that he cursed the day he was born. It's a pretty bad day. Joseph. Joseph, one of the shining examples, maybe the most Christ-like character in all the Old Testament. Joseph was betrayed by his brothers, sold into slavery, spent time in prison. Life was not easy for Joseph, and he loved God. And then in the New Testament, think about Stephen. One of the early first believers in the, uh, in the church in Acts is stoned for simply being honest and telling people the truth about Jesus. When things are difficult and trying, when things are going as you expected, and then all of a sudden they're not going as you expected, when what you thought God was going to do doesn't exactly match what God ends up doing in your life or allows to happen in your life, you can battle a temptation. And that temptation is doubt. Doubt tends to creep upon us when things aren't going well. It doesn't tend to happen when you're experiencing personal revival, right? When everything's going great and, man, you're just kind of singing hymns on your way to work and you get up in the morning and you thank God for the day. That's usually not the day that doubt creeps in. Doubt creeps in when things are hard. Doubt creeps in when you're disappointed, when you're hurting, when things aren't exactly the way you want them to be. And any Christian can battle this thing called doubt. You get rattled, your head's in a fog, you're confused, you're perplexed, and you're looking for answers. And the truth is, God is completely trustworthy. It's not admirable to doubt God and to be, in, to be doubtful in our relationship with God, but it's something that every Christian can wrestle with. I'm not saying that it's a good thing, I'm saying it's a real thing. 
And the kind of doubt I'm speaking of is from a position of faith. I'm not talking about an unbeliever who refuses to believe. There's, there's a difference. I'm talking about a, from a position of faith wrestling with doubt. The doubt of the believer who trusts the, who trusts the Lord but wrestles with doubt within the context of relationship with the Lord. That's different than unbelief or rejection of the Lord. John MacArthur puts it this way. He says, doubt is the problem of the believer in the Bible, not the unbeliever. To doubt, he says, you have to believe. Unbelief is rejection. Doubt, as MacArthur put it, is more of a perplexity about what's going on. It's when you're rattled. This morning, I want to share with you from God's Word a story of one of the godliest people to ever walk the face of the earth. And he was at a time when things were very dark for him. Life was hard and doubt began to set in. Life is going to be hard at times. If you're not going through that time right now, it's sure to come at some point. And you're going to be tempted, even as a believer, even as someone who loves the Lord Jesus, to doubt God. How do you deal with that? Look with me at Matthew chapter 11, starting in verse 1. We'll read down through verse 6. When Jesus had finished instructing his twelve disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. Now when John, this is John the Baptist, heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. And the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Subtle rebuke there from Jesus to John. This is an interesting text. It's kind of one of those that confuses some people. This is John the Baptist we're talking about here. So I want to start there this morning with the reality of doubt. The reality of doubt. John the Baptist is the one posing this question. Are you the one? This is not a third grader. This is not a, a this is not someone who you know didn't grow up in church and now they've heard about the Lord. This is John the Baptist, right? John the Baptizer, who's asking his cousin, by the way, he's related to Jesus, his cousin Jesus, are you the one or should we be looking for another? Now, if John the Baptist could be tempted in this way, if John could wrestle with doubts in his Christian life, so can you. Because doubt's a real thing. And to understand the magnitude of this, we have to kind of understand who John was. First of all, three unique things about John. First of all, his unique birth. He had a very unique birth. John is, the, as I mentioned, the cousin of Jesus. John was born to very elderly parents that loved God. And he was that baby that they never expected to have that God blessed them with late in life. His parents were so old that his dad was actually silenced for a time by God himself for doubting that he would be born. God, it was a prophecy that they would that they would have a child, and the dad was just so confounded by this and was so doubtful of this that God just closed his mouth for a while. It was prophesied by an angel of the Lord in John one fifteen that John the Baptist would quote be great. We are even told he was filled with the Holy Spirit from the womb. Now think about that for a second. Some of us can't get to church on Sunday morning filled with the Holy Spirit. John. John was filled with the Holy Spirit from the womb, right? This is a unique person. Unique birth. He had a unique life. He had a very strict rules that were given by which he had to live by. John was raised and lived on these strict rules because they were given to his parents by the Lord. And he lived a very aesthetic lifestyle. His unique aesthetic lifestyle made him different than other people. Kind of made him stand out. He was a bit of a redneck. 
If that, if that's possible for a Middle Eastern man a couple thousand years ago. And Luke 1.80 tells us that he came from the wilderness, right? And so, as, uh, you know, he was, he was a different kind of character. He wore animal skin for clothes, which was unique in that day. It was the clothing of a prophet. A big leather belt. He ate locusts and wild honey. Dude was weird. He was all kinds of weird. God loves weird people. Church is full of weird people. It's okay. We've got a long history of it. If you're weird, good news, so is John, right? And so... John the Baptist, kind of a weird guy, kind of a unique guy, kind of a different guy. And part of that was because of his the idea that he was a prophetic voice rubbing against the grain of the religious culture of that day. So he had a unique birth, he had a unique life, and he had a unique ministry. He was the forerunner for the Messiah. He came to prepare the way of the Lord, is what the Bible tells us. His basic message was this, Repent, for the kingdom of God is near. He was preparing the way for the Messiah to be revealed. He preached that judgment was coming. He was the first prophet sent to Israel in 400 years and the last prophet sent to Israel before the revealing of the Messiah. That's a unique individual. You and I are not John the Baptist, right? He had a unique individual, unique unique life, unique ministry that was prophesied all the way back in Isaiah that he would come. This is a unique character. Now one thing about John's ministry, and many of you know this, is he is the individual that actually baptized Jesus. Now that's a pretty cool thing. And here's the way it happens. Jesus comes up to John and he says, I want you to baptize me. And John looks at Jesus and says, I can't baptize you. I'm not worthy to baptize you. So John's already got a clue of who Jesus is. I mean, he leaped in the womb, right? When he was, when he, when he, when he, when he was, when he heard about Jesus, he was, he was joyous when he, when he heard him talking about Jesus. He was filled with the Holy Spirit from the womb. And I can't baptize you. And Jesus says, no, you're going to baptize me. I can't baptize you. No, you're going to baptize me. And I guess at some point Jesus was just, you know, Jesus juked him and said, I'm Jesus, right? I, you're going to baptize me because I'm telling you that you're going to baptize me. I don't know how that went down, but at some point John cried uncle and he baptized Jesus. And the Bible says that that was to fulfill all righteousness. And something unique happened. When that happened, the Bible says John witnessed, and he said he witnessed this, the Spirit of God descend like a dove on Jesus. Now what was unique about that was John tells us, and the Gospel of John tells us, that John said that God had told him that he would know who the Messiah is for sure by the descension of the Spirit on him like a dove. This anointing of the Holy Spirit that would happen when he baptized him. And so that he would see this happen. Then he sees this happen. John 3 32-34 says, John bore witness, quote, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. John is saying this, God told me how he would prove it. God proved it. This is the Messiah. So next time you see John, he's going, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world as Jesus walks into the room. If there was anybody in the New Testament that was completely 155,000% sure that Jesus Christ was the Son of God and the Messiah sent from God, it was John the Baptist. There was no person other than Jesus that was probably more certain of this, that had been given more tangible proof and had the hand of God on his life from the moment he was conceived in the womb. He's a unique person. So what am I saying when I say all this? I'm saying doubt is real. I'm saying I don't care how godly you are. I don't care how much you love Jesus. If you don't think you can wrestle with doubt in difficult times, you're arrogant. And sometimes we get that way. 
Sometimes we get a little, we, th- we don't think we can ever wrestle with that. I'm not talking about walking away from the Lord. I'm talking about wrestling with what is, being perplexed and going, can I, can I trust Him with this? Or am I, am I sure? Double checking, like, you know, it's not one of those things like, I don't believe. It's like, I just kind of want to make sure I'm right, right, I'm right. And that's what's going on with John here. On top of all of this, a few verses later, in chapter 11, verse 11 of Matthew, Jesus says this, I say to you, among those born of women, there was arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Did you catch that? That's after this episode where Jesus has to kindly rebuke John for his wrestling with this doubt. He said, there's no one greater than John the Baptist. Jesus had high regard for John even in the midst of this thing he's wrestling with, this difficult time he's wrestling with. Doubt is real. And it can be a battle for anyone. It's a real foe even for the godly, and it must be slain when it arises. We have to fight it. We have to slay it. We have to be outfitted with the right tools before it even creeps upon us. The second thing you need to know is not only is it real, you need to know the reasons for why you can doubt. And there's a couple here that pretty much all commentators agree on that's probably why John is wrestling with this. Notice John's in prison. Verse 2 tells us when John heard in prison about the deeds of Christ. John believes in Jesus, John loves Jesus, and John's even related to Jesus, yet John's in prison, and this may not have been how John envisioned things going for his ministry once the Messiah showed up. How did he get there? Well, Matthew 14 explains that John was in prison, prison for preaching against Herod's sin. Herod was the leader in that, in that area, and Herod, political leader, and Herod had taken his brother Philip's wife and made her his girlfriend. Weird family, right? Think your family's weird? Pretty weird family. Weird stuff's been going on for a long time, guys. And so he goes and he takes his his his, his sister-in-law and starts playing house with his sister-in-law. All right? Just soap opera stuff. Days of our lives stuff going on here. And so what does John do? John say, you know, I don't want to get mixed up in political matters. God help me if I start telling people that a political leader is sinful or wrong. No, what does John do? He goes to Herod and he says, you can't have her as your wife. Well, Herod's not a Jew. He doesn't claim to be a man of God, but he was a leader. He was a leader, a political leader, and a, and a, and a leader at this time that God's people were under. And John confronted him and he said, what you're doing is wrong. You're breaking God's moral law. This is evil. Well, Herod didn't take that very well, so Herod locked him in prison. And Herod's girlfriend, his sister-in-law, hated him even more, wanted him dead. So that's why John's in prison, for preaching truth, moral issue, to a political leader. And so, John's in prison, things have changed, he's in a difficult spot, and while in prison, John asks Jesus, he sends word to two of his disciples, Gospel of Luke tells us, are you the one or should we look for another? It's when he's in jail and his life is on the line that discouragement may have begun to set in and doubt begin to come knocking at the door and John sought an answer to life's most important question. Are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? There is no more important question that you'll ever ask yourself or should ask yourself than this. Is Jesus Christ the one or should you go looking for another? And John, who believe, is asking from a position of faith. He's not saying, I don't think you're the one anymore. He said, I believe you're the one. I don't, how do I know he's the Because he's going to Jesus. Think about this. He's asking Jesus. All he's looking for is for Jesus to go, yeah. That's all he's looking for. He's just reaffirming his faith. He's just wrestling with doubt. He's not turning on Jesus. He's not walking away from Jesus. He's taking this to Jesus. Are you the one or shall we go looking for another? And this is a critical question. Is Jesus the one sent from God? If yes, 
If there is no other, then then a believer can withstand any storm life throws at him or her on the surest foundation that could ever be stood on. If He's the one sent from God, if He's the one that all of life revolves around, if He's the Savior of the world, if He's King of kings and Lord of lords, then nothing else, everything else pales in comparison to the answer to that, that question. John is asking, as MacArthur said, who I quoted earlier, from a place of faith, saying, I believe I'm right. Right? I've committed my life to this. I'm about to lose my head for this. Just want to double check. Right? I'm in a pretty tough spot here, just kind of trying to figure out what's going on. Now, there's two obvious things here. John's, first of all, John's circumstances had become more difficult. He's in prison. So that had changed for John. He was no longer preaching in freedom out in the wilderness, and he's in prison now. And if Jesus is the coming king, then why is one of his choice servants in prison? Think about it. John had seen the Spirit of God descend like a dove on Jesus. And now he's asking, are you the one? Beware of letting your circumstances sway you or move you away from truth that you know good and well to be true. Uh, you don't make decisions like that when your head's in a fog. When, you, when you're not seeing clearly. When you've been hit upside the head by a two-by-four in life. That's not the time to begin to question your faith. It's the time to cling to it. And so John here, man, he, he, he's kind of rattled. He's asking this question because his circumstances are different. He's in prison now. And in the difficult times in life, when circumstances are dire and you feel isolated and alone, that's when doubt can creep in. If this, then why this? Is kind of the question. If this is true, then why is this happening? Because circumstances can affect you. You know, it is now officially God's favorite time of year. It's college football season. And if you didn't know that, you didn't know that, that's somewhere in there. I don't know. Don't double check me on that. Um, but you know, as teams are getting ready to play, whether you're, you know, if you're a football fan and they get ready to play and all this kind of stuff, some guys look great in practice. Right? They're out there and they're throwing touchdowns against air and things are doing great, you know. And then game time happens. And sometimes, you know, they don't look as great in game time. Right? There's now there's not, you know, a couple hundred people at practice, there's, you know, a hundred thousand people at game. Now what the interception they throw matters. Now if they fumble it, it could cost the game. The pressure's on, things are different, circumstances have changed, and sometimes people react differently under pressure. Just because a guy does great in practice doesn't mean he's the guy you want the ball in his hands on fourth and one with time expiring on the clock, right? Because sometimes circumstances affect people. And in the Christian life, your circumstances should not, but can, affect you. It shouldn't affect us. Right? I mean, if we just all had perfect faith, wouldn't we all just be great and we would all just look at every trial we hit and we would just kind of be like, you know, I love Jesus. This is all going to be great. We don't live that way, right? We're on our knees. We're crying. We're weeping. We're asking questions. We don't know what's going on because circumstances squeeze you. The pressure comes on. And it can affect you. And they were affecting John, I believe. Some of you may can identify with this. You've been dealt unforeseen circumstances in your life. Don't buy into the lie of the enemy this morning that you can manipulate God to do and be what you want Him to do and be. But if you behave a certain way, then God will give you something good. Right? If you tithe, you won't lose your job. If you have enough faith, you won't get sick. If you come to church, God will spare you hardship. All this kind of hokey-pokey business is just not biblical. Satan would love for you to believe that so that he can poison your faith. He'd love for you to believe something. There's nothing more dangerous to your faith than to think that because you live for the Lord, everything's going to go your way. Your circumstances are going to change from time to time. Even when your theology of suffering is good, 
the test of suffering is still hard. We have great theology. You can know. You can know it, man. You can go read books and you can read Job 400,000 times. And at the end of it, when it hits you, it's still hard. Even if you're the world's greatest theologian. Even if you know that you know that you know all these truths, life can still rock you. But it wasn't just circumstances for John, it was expectations. John had been preaching judgment. The Messiah's coming and his winnowing fork is in his hand. And all you folks are about to get it. I mean, that's what he was saying, right? He was looking at the hypocritical leaders and he was looking at the people that were leading the people astray and the corrupt uh, religious system and he was like, oh, get ready. Messiah's coming. He's going to judge all you sinners, right? He was preaching judgment. Judgment's coming. Now he's sitting in prison and Jesus is healing people and doing all these things and there's no judgment. There's the judgment. Now, maybe John was had kind of missed this. Maybe he was just kind of confused. He's asking, are you the one, should we expect, or should we look for another? That word means of a different kind. Should we be looking for a different kind of Messiah? Because you're not the kind of doing kind of what I was expecting. He was not doing things exactly according to the time frame that John maybe thought. John had been preaching about the judgment of Christ. He may have wondered, Where is this judgment? Because Herod is doing great. I'm in prison. He's over here playing house. I'm about to lose my head. Where's the winnowing fork? Where's the judgment? He may have missed this or let his circumstances blind him from the Scriptures teaching that the Messiah would come in mercy and as a sacrifice first. We don't know. John had expected one thing, but then things were different, it seems like. It's not that things were worse, just unexpected. In the end, everything was going to be awesome. But in the short term, pain and suffering would remain. See, God does not always allow things to happen the way we expect or desire for things to happen or do exactly what we expect. Sometimes our expectations are off. God has a plan, but His plan is unfolding over time. He does not show us everything at once. He gives us the the big picture. We see that in His Word. But God is painting on a canvas larger than you and I can see. He stepped back and He sees everything before it happens, after it happens, all the way into the future, all the way into... And He sees it all at one time because He's eternal. And He's painting on this magnificent canvas. And you and I are zeroed in. We're like this. And this is all we've got. We're right up on top of it. And we can't see everything that's going on like God can. And so our expectations are off sometimes. Looking back over your life, think about how many things happened that you didn't plan for. You never thought things were going to go that way. You didn't set out for that. You never thought that. You didn't think that when you were your age, that this age would happen this, and that this would happen that. Life's full of that stuff. Losing someone too soon. Being disappointed by someone you trusted. Financial disarray and calamity. Job upheaval, health issues, the list goes on, all kinds of things like this. It's the circumstances and the expectations not being met. And when that happens, it can bring questions in your life. I remember, I think I've shared this story a long time ago, but uh, I used to work for a ministry called Student Life. And in that ministry, we had a little uh, plane that we would take uh, to various things, a little four-seater four-seater plane and uh and at the time i thought that was the most awesome thing in the world that we get to go you know on this plane and go to these site visits before we did events and so you could you could knock out a couple of cities at one time and go set up because we did conferences and things of that nature and so we'd go and we'd see what's going on come back and be back in birmingham all on the same day you could go to houston and dallas and be back in birmingham by dinner time it was great and then one time i get on i get on the plane and um i get there that morning and the pilot is there, and it's like, I don't know, 7 a.m., we're getting ready to fly out, and he's, he says, he's tired. 
I said, oh, really? You're tired? He's like, yeah, he was a firefighter or something like that. He was like, yeah, I had to work the night shift last night. I thought, really? Yeah, yeah. You ready to go? You ready to go? I'm like, yeah, I guess I'm ready to go. You know, I guess I'm ready to go. And so, and I volunteered. I got this, because I think this was actually, if I remember right, was my first time on the plane. And so I got offered the, the sitting in the cockpit right there beside the pilot. I was like, well, this is going to be cool. This is going to be quite the adventure. And it really was. Um, and by the way, if you've never flown in one of those things, it is amazing to see all that goes on in the flying an airplane. I mean, you might think it's easy peasy, but he looked like Fred Flintstone over there. He's moving things with his feet. He's moving things with his leg. I mean, I don't know if he was paddling it to get it going or what, but these little planes, I mean, it's just like Dixie Cup with wings. And so we're getting going and we get up in the air and it's, it's so cool. You know, you're right there in the front and you're very well aware aware, by the way, when you're in one of those, that you are flying. You kind of forget when you're in the big things. When you're in one of those, you're flying, right? You, you feel like, you know, Superman's picked you up or something like that. And so we're flying, and so uh, we're, we're headed back that day, and it's hot, right? And I don't think I was doing seminary at the time, and I had some reading and stuff to do, and so I'm doing some reading, and I got sleepy because, you know, the sun just beating down on you, windows everywhere. So I decided I was going to take a nap. So I took a nap. And I woke up about a half hour later or so, and I looked over, and it was very quiet in the plane. The guy that went with me was in the back, stretched out. He'd been watching a movie on his laptop. He was asleep. I looked over, and the pilot was taking a nap. (laughs) And we were, I don't know how many thousands of feet in the air, and everybody was asleep, including the only guy that knew how to get that thing out of the air. And I don't know, I guess, I don't know if it was the southern hospitality in me or what. I didn't want to just like startle him and wake him up. So I start like moving papers, I'm dropping books, I'm coughing. <laughs> you know, I don't know. Looking back, I should have just shook him and like, wake up, fool. You know, I don't know. But I was just like trying to like wake him. Finally he like wakes up, you know, and he's like acting like nothing was wrong. And, and he kind of, he kind of dozed on and off until he got home, you know. And I got back, you know, and I'm like freaking out. I'm like, I think dude was taking it out. That's okay, right? It's like, it's got like, Pilot, you know, autopilot, stuff like that. So we're, we were good, right? <laughs> the guy that ran the ministry who was also a pilot was like, well, yeah, unless you're like, run out of gas, you just got to, you know, fall out of the air. <laughs> so, so, um, so anyway, so needless to say, I was a little bit more nervous uh, getting on that plane after that. I actually had another bad experience. But my point is this. I was so excited. Right? I mean, I was just, I mean, I didn't really have fear of flying or anything back then. I mean, it was just, I was so excited. Then everything changed. <laughs> Circumstances were a little different. <laughs> I didn't know how to fly. I got a guy that's asleep or dead. I'm not sure what's going on. And he's just out over here like drooling um, beside me. And the way I felt was different. The way I felt about the experience was different. And you know who I doubted the most? The person who was in control. The one who I looked to to be in control. I questioned him. Now, should we doubt God? Should we question God? No. But I'm telling you, when life's hard, you will be tempted to look at the pilot and to point the finger. Now, our pilot's not asleep at the wheel. Our pilot's not got his head in the clouds. He's not snoozing. He's not not paying attention. He's not untrustworthy. He doesn't need to sleep, so you can, by the way, so he's awake all the time. But I'm telling you, when circumstances change and when expectations aren't being met according to what you thought, the pressure comes and it changes your perception. So we have to battle. So that's that's the the reasons for that. There's more, and there's there's probably even more in this text. That's two of the main ones we see from John, and that we can deal with in our own lives. So how do we respond to this? Well, how does Jesus respond to doubt? He doesn't get angry and yell at John. Jesus responds lovingly and patiently and with well, what I would call a mild rebuke. He's compassionate with John, but he's direct with his doubts. 
Jesus could have just said to John, you could have just said, you know what, John? Yes, I am the one. You don't need to look for any other. But you notice he didn't say that. He doesn't even say yes, in a sense. What does he do? Well, he tells him, he actually, Luke tells us, he, he, he takes these guys and shows him doing these things. Lepers being healed, blind being made to see, deaf being made to hear, lame being able to walk. He, he takes them and shows them, hands on, look at what's happening. Go tell John that's what you saw. Go tell John that's what you, this is what you saw. And the whole list is Old Testament prophecies about Christ. From Isaiah. Now, Isaiah would have been a favorite books, book of John's. How do I know that? Because he said, Behold, I'm one crying out like one in the wilderness. That's from Isaiah. The voice of one crying in the wilderness prophecies from Isaiah. Uh, Isaiah is the one who prophesied about John. John would have knew the prophecy of Isaiah. And so, Jesus is, no doubt, he's quoting Isaiah 35, 5, 61-1, 26-19, 53-4, 42-7, all contain these prophecies that Jesus shows that he is fulfilling. So he's saying yes, but what's he doing it with? The Bible. Doing it with the Bible. And John would have known this. And Jesus is saying, tell him what you've seen. You've seen the very things the Word of God said you would see. And he's saying, more than just saying yes, Jesus is saying, I'll show you and I'll let you test that with the Word of God. You tell me. You tell me if I'm the one. Jesus' response was, was more than just a yes. It was, it was very helpful. Because he could have just said yes, but he might have had to deal with this from John again. Well, tell me yes again. Tell me yes again. So what does he do? He resources him. He resources him with the Scriptures and with fulfillments of the Scriptures. And Jesus left out a key prophecy from those texts. Isaiah 42.7 and 61.1 tell that the Christ would release the prisoners or take those out of the dungeons. And he didn't tell John that. Quotes everything around it. Go look it up. Quotes everything around it. Completely leaves it out. Why? You ain't getting out. Yes, I'm the one. I'm the one you were created for. I'm the one you were sent to prophesy and to, and to make the way for. And no, you're not getting out of the prison. That's a hard word. That's a hard word. And I think in a way, Jesus is lovingly leaving that out. But I think he doesn't want to give John false hopes either. Because he did come to set the prisoner free, but in his first coming, the prisoners he was setting free were those in bondage to sin. Yeah, there's, there's coming a day when the prison's going to be done away with and none of God's people will be imprisoned to anything. But in his first coming, it was the, the prison of sin and depravity that he's setting us free from, delivering us from the consequences of our sin, the power of sin. Even though Jesus is the Messiah, John would still have to suffer. And our faith in Jesus doesn't mean our circumstances will be what we wish. And that our expectations will always be met. Jesus gave John a loving and helpful word and a hard word. I am the one. The trial remains. Matthew 14 tells us that John's story in Matthew does not end very well. From our perspective. Herodias, Herod's brother's wife, his sister-in-law, and his own personal girlfriend, had a daughter. And Herod has his niece dance for him at his birthday party. His family just gets weird, don't it? And he's so pleased by her sensual, likely, dance, that he tells her, I'll give you anything you want, even half my kingdom if you want. Just talking a big game in front of his buddies, and they're probably just, you know, partying it up here at his birthday party. And the Bible says Herod is kind of baffled by this, but she goes to her 
mom and she says, what should I ask for? And her mom hated John the Baptist. She says, ask for John the Baptist's head on a platter. And this grieved Herod because he didn't really want to kill him. The one time he did, but I guess he'd kind of grown fond of John. I don't know if he was like a pet or what, but the Bible tells us it kind of grieved him. But nonetheless, he was not going to be made a fool of in front of his buddies. So the next thing we see is the greatest person that Jesus said had lived is dead at the request of about a 14-year-old girl after dancing for her uncle at his birthday party. What's fair about that? What's fair about that? Jesus' cousin. The forerunner. I mean, there, I can't put a bow on that for you. and make that, I can't make that sound pretty. That's hard. That's difficult. That's painful. That's ugly. That's, that's, that's hard, right? That's what in the world? And that's what happened. Now we know, now we look back and we go, John's in glory. John, John is free, right? He has been completely set free from that prison. And we know that there's coming a day where all that's going to be done away with. But in this life, the hard things remain. They just do. And sometimes God answers a prayer and heals in this life and changes a heart and spares us heartache and pain. But sometimes the trial does remain. And sometimes things get harder. And sometimes in this life, what we're left with is Jesus and His promises. And that's okay. Because what we find out in those moments is that He is enough. Jesus' promise to John and His gentle rebuke was this, Blessed is the one who is not offended by me. It's a mild, loving rebuke I mentioned. Blessed means happy. It's a beatitude. It's the same word that Jesus used in the beatitudes. Offended means doesn't fall away, doesn't stumble on account of me. Jesus is saying, if you'll continue to trust me, you'll be blessed in the end. In the end, you're going to be happy. But you've got to trust me. But if you don't, he's saying, he's saying, don't doubt. Blessed are those that don't doubt. Blessed are those who trust me. Blessed are those who hold to me. That don't stumble and that don't fall away when I do things just like you want me to do things. In other words, John would find eternal joy and happiness somehow if he didn't turn away from Christ in the moment when it was most difficult. If he would cling to Jesus, if, he, if Christ would be his treasure, if he would trust Christ, even though he didn't understand what was going on, if he would not be offended and turn away on account of Christ's plan, he would ultimately be blessed, happy, eternally. You know, trials are not meant to push us away from Christ. They're, they're meant to, to draw us to Christ. James 1, 2 says, Count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And he says, let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect, complete, lacking in nothing. God uses trials in our life to grow our faith, to stretch our faith, to strengthen our faith, to prove our faith. They're not meant to push us away. When we hold to Christ in the midst of the trials and we don't fall away, our faith is strengthened. We end up lacking nothing. And in the end, those that trust Christ will ultimately be blessed. I think John found that Christ was enough. How do I know that? Well, in Matthew 14, after he dies, the first person his disciples tell is Jesus. And I think that's because they knew Jesus was the most important person in John's life. He was all John had left. John didn't fall away. He clung to the promise of Christ. He wasn't falling away. He knew he was going to be back. He was ultimately, at that moment, from then on, he was in the presence of the living God and celebrating the arrival of the Lamb of God. From our perspective, wow. This is tragedy. But from John's perspective after that, the only world had been opened up. Jesus' words were loving and patient, but they were hard words. Jesus was telling John 
Trust me, I believe Jesus' words to John helped John slay his doubt. And I believe doubt is a dragon that we have to constantly slay in our lives as we go through difficult things before it really gets a chance to get going. Because as it builds steam, it only gets worse. So how do we respond to doubt? And how do we respond when we go through difficult times when things aren't as you expected in, in trials and all that? What do we learn from this? Well, doubt's not good, but if you're going to have it, the first thing you do is do what John did. You go to Jesus. You go to Jesus. It wasn't good that John was wrestling with this. We don't, you're not a hero for that. But he did the right thing. He went to Jesus. And Jesus is the place you go to with your doubt. You don't go somewhere else. You don't go looking for another. He wasn't, he didn't, he wasn't warning another. He went to the one and said, do I look for another? He was just looking for a yes from Jesus. He was just looking for a yes, I'm the one. He knew Jesus was the one. Even his response in the midst of his dark time shows his faith. We go to Jesus. When we're doubting, when things are difficult, when trials are hard, how do we go to Jesus? We go to Jesus in prayer. We approach the throne of the Father in the name of Christ. Jesus made a way for us to be able to boldly go to the throne of grace, the Bible tells us. That's where we go when we wrestle with that. We don't cower in fear. We don't just sit there and play with our doubt. We don't go searching in other places. We go to God. We go to the source of the answers that we're looking for. And we listen to His Word. What did Jesus do? He quoted the Word of God. What do we need when we're going through that? God knows what we need. We need the Word of God. He, 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 he gave him more than a yes. He gave him the Bible. And if Jesus gave John the Baptist a Bible and not just a yes, trust me, he doesn't want to just give you a yes or an easy answer. He wants you to have, he, he gave you his word. His prophecies are in his word. Jesus' miracles are incredible, but what makes them more incredible is that they were actually prophesied many years before he came. You start divorcing Jesus from the Bible and start trying to prove Jesus is the Messiah and Jesus is the Son of God apart from Old Testament prophecy. You're just kind of playing a crazy game the Bible don't play. It's in the context of that. Jesus' fulfillment of the Bible. When Paul wrote in Romans, faith comes by hearing and hearing the Word of Christ. You want to grow your faith in the midst of doubt, in the midst of struggles, in the midst of trial? You need the Word of God. You need to hear the Word of God. When trials are kicking in your door, when life is hard and you're wrestling with doubt, that is not a time to lay in the bed all day. That is not a time to skip church and to do other things. That is not a time to let dust grow on your Bible or your Bible app to never be updated. That is a time to get in the Word and press in even harder. We need the Word of God. And thirdly, we've got to choose to trust Him. That mild rebuke. Blessed. Blessed. If you don't fall away on account of me. Just trust me, you say. You know, later after the death of John, Jesus would do what he came to do. Not judge the world, but bear the judgment that the world deserves. The condemnation we deserve so that we could escape God's wrath and not have to experience God's wrath. Jesus was even better than John could have imagined. Because he wasn't just coming to judge the world. He's coming back in judgment. But in His first coming, He wasn't coming to judge the world. He was coming to bear the judgment that the sinners in the world deserve. He, he was Fulfilling John's expectations, He went beyond John's wildest dreams. He was way better than John could have expected. When we live on the other side of the cross, we live on the other side of an empty tomb. We get to read in His Word of His greatest miracle after suffering and after dying for us. We get to read of His resurrection. We've got even more information. We've got the full, whole counsel of God in the Word of God to cling to. For some of you today, maybe you've never trusted Christ. You're not a doubter. You're an unbeliever. 
There's never been a time where you repented of your sin and put your faith in Jesus. So don't stumble over Jesus today and the hard things in life. Don't let the difficult things in life make you, make you think there's no God or that God's not good. Don't refuse Jesus because He doesn't do everything just like you want Him to or how you want Him to. Test the claims of Christ. Consider Jesus. If Jesus did everything like we wanted Him to, He wouldn't be God. He'd be a figment of your imagination. So trust the Jesus of the Bible. Maybe today that's what you need to do. Maybe you need to come to Jesus in faith for the first time. But as a believer today, every time doubt rears its head, go to Jesus, go to His Word, and trust Him.